Hello there, I'm Corey, and this is the Official Tapes. It's a radio program that airs on a bunch of radio stations around the globe, and every once in a while we uh, get to squeeze in an interview. And this go-around, uh, you may have heard of this guy as the author or co-author of Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. It's David Merriman Scott here, and I am the co-author with my 27-year-old daughter, Reiko, of Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans. Now, David is a huge fan of the Grateful Dead, so we had to do this into two parts with Fanocracy. One part is Fanocracy that is very Grateful Dead music-focused, and then the other one is more generalized. But there's, of course, some Grateful Dead references in there. So this is Fanocracy, the Grateful Dead version. Enjoy. I am a massive, massive live music fan. 75 Grateful Dead shows so far. My first one was um, January 1979 in New Haven. Um, it was actually with Donna uh, and Keith, which was kind of cool. And Jerry was playing Wolf. I have a picture right here that I'm looking at. And my daughter, Reiko, is a massive fan of Harry Potter. So what we did is we came at this idea of fandom because we weren't really getting so much out of the online world anymore. It felt like the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of superficial online communications. And we kind of felt like we're looking for the true human connections. And so the online world wasn't really working out for us so much anymore. But at the same time, we're massive geeks around these things that we love, live music and Harry Potter, and Reiko also gets dressed up for Comic-Con. So we decided to team up to test a thesis. The thesis was that any organization can build fans. It doesn't have to be a band or an author, but any organization. And so we spent five years doing that research and have found that, yes, indeed, there are all kinds of organizations that that can build fans. This book we wrote, Fanocracy, Turning Fans into Customers and Customers into Fans, um, gets at the idea of how does the Grateful Dead and Harry Potter build fans, and then how can any organization use those ideas, the prescriptions, to develop fans of their own. So fanocracy is a word that we made up. <laughs> uh, it took us six months to come up with the title Fanocracy because we wanted a word that people would instantly know essentially what it means. You know, a democracy is the rule of the people. A fanocracy is a rule by the fans. So the idea of fanocracy is it's a, a personal approach to business. Uh, it's the idea of making business personal. It's the idea that whenever you put your product or service out there into the world, you need to let the fans take over and let the fans own it. And that's something that the Grateful Dead has always done, haven't they? I mean, they put their music out to the world and they recognize that once it's out there, they no longer own it. And Jerry actually even said that when they were talking about the tapers in the early days. They said, well... My feelings are the music is for the people. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, 
I mean, after it leaves our instruments, it's of no value to us. You know what I mean? It's like, what good? What? It, what good is it? So it might as well be taped. My feeling is. And so they decided to let fans record the shows when no other band allowed that, because the members of the Grateful Dead said, "Well." And if people enjoy taping it and enjoy having the tapes to listen to, that's real great. And I can sympathize with it because I used to do a lot of taping myself mm -hmm. when I was a bluegrass band. As a band, I would say that they were incredibly generous. Um, that they they did so many things that were incredibly generous that other bands didn't do. And this is a chapter in our book, Generosity, the idea of giving a gift without any expectation of anything in return. So some of the things that come to mind around the Grateful Dead's generosity is clearly allowing tapers. I mean, incredibly generous to allow the creation initially of cassette tape recordings and later on MP3s to allow people to share. Incredibly generous is a gift to the fans. And sure, it sold concert tickets, but the band didn't realize that right away. They were doing it to give gifts to the fans. Then the ability to to sell merchandise, you know, in the parking lot. There's so many bands that clamp down on that, and you've got to go inside the arena or inside the stadium and buy the official merch. You can't sell it in the parking lot. The band figured out how to make go of that. You know, if you handmade a few shirts with a Grateful Dead logo on it, cool, keep going. But if you're a, a big operation, we'll, we'll license you, and then you can still do it, but we want to get a little piece of the license. So that's incredibly generous to allow that rather than sell your $50 shirts in the stadium. And then they're doing the tickets. That was something the dead were very conscious of, is that they didn't want the kind of big Ticketmaster thing involved or whoever was doing tickets in, in the mid-70s. Originally it was Ticketron and then later Ticketmaster and whatnot. And they just felt that there was one more way to ensure that their fans, their real fans... That's the voice of David Lemieux. He is the Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager. So if they were going to play 3,000-seat theaters rather than 20,000-seat arenas or stadiums, it would be packed with their fans, with the hardcore deadheads. It must have been a pain in the ass to run that ticketing system. <laughs> you know, can you, can you imagine getting thousands and thousands of hand-stamped envelopes with those stupid postal money orders? I mean, it was a pain in the ass to, to make them as a fan, but at least if you did, you knew you had a decent shot of getting... Of, you know, getting some seats in the early days, you usually hit, hit pretty nicely. I've got actually got some front rows a couple of times, but they partly did that because of the fans. And you know, they're giving a gift to the fans when they could give all the tickets to Ticketron and later Ticketmaster, and you know, still make close to the same amount of money. But you know, let's let's have a group of people that <laughs> that, that that like manually sort tickets out for days and days and days and days. So I think it comes down to that word generosity. I dive in pretty deep and riff on the whole idea of tickets and how frustrating it is as a fan to go on Ticketmaster, you know, the first three seconds that a show is on sale. And then you know, it doesn't matter the band, but whatever band it is, you go on and then um, you find out that the only ticket you can get, even though you, you were you push the button on the first second, the only ticket you can get is, you know, third tier in the balcony. And you're like, well, what the hell, you know? And then, and that looks bad on the act. 
And in some cases, it's the app's fault because they and their management hold back tickets, which then the band themselves sells on the secondary market through StubHub and other places. Or they do deals with the credit card companies, you know, that credit card companies get the pre-sale BS. And they're just trying to make extra money. Or, you know, all of these sorts of shenanigans going on with ticketing so that fans have a difficult time getting a ticket, which is a horrible thing to do to fans. So we looked into what are the things that bands can do to be way more transparent about the way that they sell tickets. So some bands have fan clubs where you pay 25 bucks a year, whatever the number is, and then you have access to tickets earlier. Jack White does a great job with this. Uh, his fan club is called The Vault, which I have been a member of. And they announce tickets to a tour. You can buy tickets through The Vault, and those tickets go before they go to the Ticketmaster system. And there's other bands that do that kind of approach as well. Um, then Ticketmaster has gotten into the act with their verified fan program, which I think works really well if not too many seats are held back and if they're truly selling to fans through verified fan. And there's a lot of bands who have done a good job using verified fan where if you're a real person who goes to shows and Ticketmaster's algorithm says, yeah, this person usually buys two or four tickets and it doesn't feel to us that they're just buying them and reselling them, that they will get one of the codes for verified fan. And that's tied to the email address so the ticket, the code can't be sold. That's also a nice, transparent, nice way to do it. So I think the bands need to really step up on this stuff. You know, paperless ticketing is another thing. Ticketmaster, again, has done a pretty good job with their new barcode system where the, the barcode actually moves so that you can't just do a screenshot of the barcode and use that to get in. You have to have the, the bar that moves approach. And so things like that are making it better for fans to get tickets, whereas it's fabulously frustrating to be there the first second and get crappy seats but then 10 minutes later you go on StubHub and the seats that should have been yours are three times the price but the bands need to figure out that that makes them look bad and it's incredibly irresponsible for them to blame Ticketmaster because that's what a lot of bands do that oh our hands are tied we're all you know we deal with Ticketmaster well no your hands are not tied you can figure it out you just have to realize that your bank account is less important than your fans and holding back all the best seats and selling them yourself on StubHub is annoying you know I think bands need to figure that out One of the things that we really wanted to do with this idea of fandom is to understand the neuroscience behind what's going on in our brains when we become a fan of something. We ended up talking to a number of different PhDs in neuroscience. And one person who we became aware of, his name is Edward T. Hall, identified the different levels of distance from other people and what that means for us as humans. Backing up just a little bit, it turns out that all of us humans are hardwired to want to be part of a tribe of like-minded people. 
And that's really important. It's actually a survival technique. And it's important because when we're with our tribe of like-minded people, we're safe and secure. And that goes back tens of thousands of years. You know, when you're with your group of cave people, you know, you're protected from another group of cave people that might come by and want to hit you with their clubs. I'm exaggerating a little bit. But that's one reason why when we become fans of the Grateful Dead, for example, we're a, we're a part of a tribe of like-minded people. Now, I can turn to anybody at a dead show waiting in line for beer or waiting in line to get in or, or, you know, waiting, you know, during the set break, whatever it is, and have a conversation as if we'd known each other for a decade because we're all part of that same tribe. And we humans love that idea of being part of a tribe, of being part of a group of like-minded people. So this neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall identified that there's several different levels of how close you get to another human and what those things mean. And the basic idea is the closer you get to someone, the more powerful the shared emotions are. So further than 20 feet uh, is public space. And we don't begin to track people in our public space. Um, We know they're there, but we don't really, in our unconscious mind, begin to track them. However, Once people get within about 20 feet or so from us, up to about four feet, that becomes social space. And so in social space, roughly four feet to roughly 20 feet, our brains begin to track the people who get within our social space. So what that means is if you walk into a crowded party, or you're where I like to stand if I can on the near the front of a show, you know subconsciously the people who are just around you because your brain is tracking them because your ancient brain needs to know are these people part of our tribe or are they potential enemies? So that's why when you're nearby people who are part of your tribe in a, at a dead show, for example, you feel safe and comfortable and it feels great. But when you're nearby people for whom they're not part of your tribe in a crowded elevator or a crowded subway car or walking down a city street, you feel uncomfortable. And it's just your ancient brain kicking in. So that's all in physical space. Now, what does that mean when you can't get close to people? Well, there's another form of neuroscience called mirror neurons, which become really important for us to maintain that tribe of people, even in a situation where you can't go out. And mirror neurons are the part of our brains that fire when we see or even just hear somebody doing something and they're firing as if we're doing it ourselves. So I will demonstrate that for you right now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bite into a lemon. And when I bite into a lemon, my brain begins to fire because, wow, that lemon is so tart. It's so powerful. My eyes close. My eyes are watering a little bit. My mouth is puckering up. Saliva glands are doing their thing. It's a really powerful thing to bite into a lemon. My gosh, my brain is firing, but yours is too. 
And everyone who's listening in his brain's firing too. It's crazy. And that's this power of mirror neurons. So here's how we can use this, all of us, to be an effective communicator and be a part of, continue to be a part of the tribes we're a part of, or even generate more people to be part of our tribe. So if you work for a company to generate more people who might be interested in um, following what you're doing or maybe becoming your customers, and that is use video effectively and crop that video as if it's about four feet away, uh, not necessarily four feet from the camera, but the person who's watching the video feels as though you're four feet away from them. And the reason that's powerful is that intellectually we know that someone who's on a screen talking to us is not next to us. They're, they, they could be thousands of miles away. They could have filmed that six months ago. Or if it's live, we even have a, a greater, stronger bond because we know intellectually that that is a live show that's happening right now. But our ancient brains through mirror neurons don't allow us to assume the difference. And we actually believe that we're in the same room with that person on the screen. And you know that's true because every one of us feel as though we know personally a movie star or a television star, right? You know, you, you watch a particular show on a regular basis and, you know, you feel you know that person personally, or if you follow a particular YouTube star, you think you know that person personally. And you know intellectually you've never met that person, but you feel you know them personally because of this powerful way that we can connect with people just through video. What's interesting for me is, of course, I've grown up, clearly, and I sort of got to my fandom in the middle of the Grateful Dead's run. So 1979 had already been around for, what, 15 years, um, 14 years. So, um, uh, so I wasn't really, really early, but I did end up having an opportunity to see the band with Jerry a, couple, a num number of times. Not as many as we would have liked, but I feel like over that time, the band has become more iconic and more, in a way, more deeply ingrained in the culture in an interesting way. I think that the fans, the incredibly loyal fans who, for whom it's a really important part of their life, and those can even be young people, young people who are millennials in their 20s or early 30s and have seen lots of shows and love it, going on the tour and so on, and that's pretty awesome. I think that there's a sense with people now that I don't, how much longer are the, the three core going to be, well, four, including Phil, how much longer are they going to be able to continue to do this? And I firmly believe that the music will live on in live form until the day I die. I'm in my late 50s that, you know, even when the original band members are no longer able to play, that the music will still live on and still be played a lot, just like... Gershwin is played a lot, just like music from the swing era is played a lot. I think Grateful Dead music will be played a lot, so the fans will continue. I just feel like that there's people whose fandoms are different than mine, and I don't want to say that the way that they're a fan is wrong. Um, you know, there's another 
group of people that um, I run across on a fairly regular basis where, uh, and I talk about Grateful Dead at my speeches. I speak all over the world about marketing. I do about 40 speeches around a, a, a year all over the world and, you know, audiences of several hundred to several thousand people typically. And um, I always talk about the Grateful Dead at every speech in some way. And it, you know, these are audiences, these are corporate audiences. So it's, it's a, weird, a little bit weird to talk about the Grateful Dead. But, but one of the things that I, I love to do is uh, I have a little contest and I say, um, how many people are fans of the Grateful Dead? Raise your hand. And then usually it's, a, it's about 10% of people in the room and sometimes even 20 who raise their hand. Not, not so much outside the U.S., but in the U.S. And then, okay, if you've ever been to either a Grateful Dead concert or any of the bands that followed the Grateful Dead that included one of the original members of the Grateful Dead, so that's Dead & Company, Rat Dog, The Dead, um, you know, Seven Walkers, any of those bands further, please stand up. Uh, so any band, the Grateful Dead or any of the bands that followed that included a member, original member of the Grateful Dead stand up. And a, there are five, sometimes even 10% of the room will stand up. Okay, keep standing if you've seen five or more shows. Keep standing if you've seen 10 or more shows. Keep standing if you've seen 25 or more shows. And if it's a big room with a few thousand people, there might be 15 people still standing when I'm at 25. And then I'll say... Anybody 50 or more shows, and there might be three people standing, 100 or more shows, maybe two or three people might be standing. And I'll say, um, sir, how many shows? And, you know, 146, <laughs> you know, and I'll say, oh, how about, and how, ma'am, how many, what's your name? And say, My name is Mary. Mary, how many shows have you seen? It's like, um, uh, you know, I lost count at 179, oh, 179, that's great. Anyone more than 179? Well, Mary, you're the winner. Uh, and it's really a fun moment. And they win a copy of my book, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, which I hand them. And, uh, and I use that to illustrate the idea that, you know, people become fans, they become rabid fans. And part of that is because the dead allowed uh, people to record their shows. But then, almost always, there'll be somebody who will come up to me after that you know, at the coffee break or at the dinner or at the cocktail reception, whenever it is. And they'll say, I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan, too. Um, I've saw the band 76 times. Um, but as soon as Jerry died, I never went again. And so there's a really big group of people who, for whom the Grateful Dead equals Jerry Garcia. And they've never seen Mayor. They've never gone post-1995. Now, I'm not going to be able to convince them that it's still awesome and that John Mayer is not Jerry, but John Mayer is freaking crazy awesome. I'm not going to be able to convince them of that, but that's how they experience their fandom. And I'm cool with that. But I And I don't try to change their mind, but I say... I do say something like, man, you should, you should try it. Just buy a ticket and go. John Mayer is awesome. No, it's not the same as Jerry, but he's not trying to copy Jerry. He's reinterpreting the music, which is amazing. And it's a band you love. Check them out. And I won't push it further than that. Um, so there are people who have different forms of fandom, and I think that's cool. You know, if they're in my face telling me that I 
that I suck because I've only seen 75 shows. And I, my first show, I, did, I, I went when I was 17 to my first show. Well, why didn't you go when you were 15? You could have gone to the 77 tour. And I'm like, because I was 15 years old. <laughs> if somebody wants to go there, I can go there. Okay, I own Ramrod's original road case. Work, work, I was in, used in 850 shows. And if you've ever seen on Billy's drum kit, he still has on, looking at this right now, on his drum kit, he's got a, a, a funky kind of Grateful Dead brass medallion. And um, Bobby has one on one of his old Rat Dog amps. He doesn't use it anymore. So these medallions were issued to members of the band as well as the Ramrod. So in my on my Grateful Dead road case is one of these medallions. And this road case was used for 850 shows. And it's pretty awesome. And okay, so you've been to 81 shows and I've been to 75, um, but I own Ramrod's road case. I'm looking at it right now and there, there's about 40, back, maybe a 50 or 60 backstage passes on it, which are awesome. I'm looking at Greek, Greek Theater. Um, I'm looking at uh, Madison Square Garden, September 16th, 1987. These are all backstage passes. And I love that there's um, uh, April 4th, 1986, Hartford Civic Center, because I was at that show. So that's pretty awesome. It's about four feet tall. Uh, the person, I, I won't tell you how I came across it. I bought it privately. But um, the person who I acquired it from told me, that for 850 shows, this is where some of the smokables were stored. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I was told, so that's kind of cool. So, you know, we all have the things that we geek out about, and, you know, can you top this? It's it's fine. It's it, it, If some people think that that's important, I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> we all have our weird nerdiness. Um, I get it. <laughs> So my buddy Juanito Pascal is a, um, a, a fabulous flamenco guitarist, one of the best in the world. And uh, he grew up um, a huge Grateful Dead fan and a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. And so Juanito, who now is a touring musician in flamenco and has several albums out, he's like, he's really awesome music. He and I had a some conversations, I don't know, four or five years ago, where I knew he was a deadhead. He, we, he and I had gone to several dead-related shows and recently have gone to some Dead & Company shows. And I didn't realize, though, that he um, was a, such a Hendrix fan. And I said, you know, and I, I'd seen his, his shows four or five times, too. And I said, you're a massive Hendrix fan, a massive Grateful Dead fan. Why don't you ever do any covers? And he's like, flamenco music covers? I'm not really sure. And I go, well, do it once, just try it out. So he said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yeah, me and my band and the band are gonna work up something. And he said, well, deb debut it near in Boston when you're when you're around. So he actually he actually did a um, a, a cover of um, of Scarlet, and it was it was awesome. Awesome. As, and, and the audience, they got standing ovation. It was amazing, right? Because so there's this weird kind of, of overlap between Grateful Dead fans and Flamenco fans, I guess. And then that got him thinking about other covers he can do. And he did a fabulous cover of 
um, while my guitar gently weeps. If he wanted to play rock guitar, he'd be among the best rock guitarists in the world, but he's a flamenco guitarist. So the idea of this particular riff in our book is that passion is infectious. And when I'm doing my speeches and I talk about the Grateful Dead, I'm clearly passionate about the Grateful Dead. My passion for the Grateful Dead is infectious, and that helps me to bond in a different way with people when I'm talking about how to do marketing better. And with Juanito Pascal and his flamenco guitar um, shows, by sharing that he's passionate about Hendrix and passionate about the Grateful Dead, and even throwing in a cover, personalizes him, humanizes him, shows that he's more than just a a flamenco guitarist, that he's someone who's passionate about other kinds of music. So the idea that passion is infectious, and that's where that particular story of Hendrix and flamenco came, was that his being passionate about about Hendrix, even in a flamenco concert, is really interesting. And, um, and that's something I think we can all do. Every, every single one of us on this planet, when we showcase the things that we love number one we live a life of more joy you live a a life of more joy when you are showcasing the things you love when you're doing the things you love when you buy that ticket and go to that show you're happy i mean you know there's a a lot of times where i have a ticket to a show like oh god i don't want to drive into boston or take the train into boston or but once i'm at the show i think i can count in one hand the times I'd say well that wasn't really worth it you know it's like it's always like yeah this is great I'm at a lot and it doesn't matter what the band is great I'm I'm glad I'm motivated to be here this is awesome (laughs) many Grateful Dead fans know Headcount because Andy Bernstein, who runs it, and the co-founder, Mark Brownstein, they do a great job at getting people to register to vote in a nonpartisan way by setting up tables at shows. And they're frequently at Dead & Company, and Bob Weir is on their board. And it's an awesome thing. I, I don't know their exact numbers as of now, but something like over a half million people have been registered to vote through through Headcount. And what's interesting about that is that they have aligned themselves with a fandom, the, the live music fandom, and used that fandom and the ideas that musicians who support Headcount as a way to have a nonprofit be successful. So lots of musicians are public on their social media, or just by virtue of allowing Headcount to set up a booth, they're public that they support Headcount and what Headcount is doing as a, as a nonprofit. And a lot of musicians, I mean, there are, up, there are hundreds and hundreds of musicians who will support the idea of it's now time to vote. It's now time to understand the issues. And they never say who you should vote for, but they make sure that you understand the issues and that you know how to register, you know where your polling place is. And it's just a really interesting way that headcount taps an existing fandom of people who are fans of live music and who are fans of individual bands and then that leads to them thinking oh well shoot i need to register to vote i'm glad i was i remembered and then there's a clipboard they can sign up right then and there 
the idea of fanocracy started simple. It's my daughter and I looked at can any organization, person, uh, idea, company build fans the same way the Grateful Dead and Harry Potter? And the answer is absolutely yes. There's now many thousands of people who have read the book and started to implement the ideas, and we're getting tons of emails from people saying, wow, these ideas work really well. Lots of things at fanocracy.com, www.fanocracy.com. Um, on Twitter, I am DM Scott. That's D-M-S-C-O-T-T. I'm on the other social networks as well, but I'm mainly focus on Twitter on a regular basis. And um, anyone who's, a lot of people who um, listen to radio and podcasts are audiobook people. So Reiko and I read the audiobook ourselves um, for Fanocracy. And so a Fanocracy is when the fans rule. Mm-hmm.